in less than an hour, we'll finish our six months out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. According to Dr. Hasline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Seen from out here, everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. Welcome to... Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, a bi-weekly podcast. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our second episode. I had the tentative title for this episode, Throwing Poo. Why you wouldn't do that to the 1968 Planet of the Apes film. But we settled on the title, the 1968 Planet of the Apes film. We have a special guest, true science lover and science fiction author, Robert J. Sawyer. And I will be introducing him shortly. And before we get into it, here's our spoiler alert. There will be an in-depth discussion of the film and its plot points. We will touch on all things Ape, including the book, the movie, is based on uh, the original series of films, the TV show, the comics, the subsequent films, the parodies, the collectibles. There will be spoilers, but spoilers put hair on your chest, so be prepared. Uh, we are recording this session via Zoom, so thanks for its platform. Also, Robert James Sawyer is my brother-in-law, so I thought that should be mentioned up front. So let me introduce my brother-in-law. Robert J. Sawyer has won the Best Novel Hugo Award for Hominids, the Best Novel Nebula Award for The Terminal Experiment, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for MindScan, plus over 60 other writing awards. The ABC TV series Flash Forward was based on his novel of the same name. And his 24th novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, is now out. Rob holds honorary doctorates from the University of Winnipeg and Laurentian University, was one of the initial inductees into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame, and is a member of the Order of Canada, his country's highest honor. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, what we do with our, our podcast, and one of the things I did at the, the first, mentioned at the very first episode, uh, where Troy and, 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 and I uh, basically introduced ourselves and talked about what we wanted to do, was we talked about our early favorites. And one of the things I did mention is that Rob and I were on a panel back in 2016 of the 50, 50 years ago uh, genre was basically taking over the airwaves. So in 1966, there was so much genre on TV and I had left off Jeffrey Beeler, who was the one who came up with the idea of the panel and picked Rob and I as his co-host. So sorry about that, Jeffrey. So for early genre loves, before we get into the discussion of the 1968 Planet of the Apes film, Troy and I would like to know about how you were first introduced to genre, whether it be written word or cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a bi-weekly podcast where we are trying to cater to those who grew up on SF and fantasy and horror and all the other speculative fields in the 60s and 70s, and in some cases earlier and later. We think our audience will be those who want to remember back to this time with fondness and affection. So Rob, what was your first genre? memory 
I'm part of that generation that came into science fiction through television and only discovered books later. And in fact, the TV series made by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson in the United Kingdom, the Super Marionation TV series, starting with Supercar, followed by Fireball XL5, still to my day, uh, to, to stay my favorite. Uh, he's best known for Thunderbirds, of course. Those were my introduction to the genre. Uh, thanks a lot, Robin. What was your first genre thing that you actually fell in love with? Well, I did fall in love with Fireball XL5, which was an outer space adventure series. But the love that I have that has stuck with me is Star Trek, the original series. I saw the episode, the first one I saw was The Devil in the Dark in 1967, when I was six years old, when it was uh, in its very first broadcast. And I've been an absolute Trekkie ever since. Uh, we've got some uh, quick kind of rapid fire questions about your favorite genre things. I, I know we do want to get to the uh, talk about the apes, but and we're just looking for titles at the moment. So uh, what is your favorite genre movie? 2001, A Space Odyssey. Okay. And I think you've already answered this, but your favorite genre TV show? Star Trek, the original series. Now, your favorite novel, favorite genre novel, you don't have to limit it to one. If you, no, if that's you fine. There's one. It's the Hugo and Nebula award-winning novel, Gateway, by Frederick Pohl. Okay, and for, for shorter works, because there's certainly a lot of short stories, novelettes, and novellas out there. And if you want to pick one from each category, or just pick one shorter work that, that is your favorite. Sure. The uh, Irish writer James White has a wonderful short story called Tableau, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you mentioned to me, because I was looking for older sort of great science fiction stories, you had recommended that when you also mentioned that Mike Resnick said it was also what he considers the, the best science fiction short story out there. Exactly. Now, I've read it, and you're you might be right. It is a fantastic story, and I'm glad that you recommended it. Now, your favorite genre author is? Arthur C. Clarke. And what is, out of all the themes, that, 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 that genre, because there's all sorts of, of themes within genre, what is your favorite theme? Very much apropos of our discussion today, what does it mean to be human? Ooh, very nice. Okay, now what we're going to do first is to get into, for, the, for, for Planet of the Apes, is Troy is going to set up the film in sort of its context. And once he's done that, if you want to add anything, and then we'll get into some questions. So Troy, take it away. All right. Thanks very much, David. So here it is, your two old farts, Planet of the Apes breakdown. The original Planet of the Apes film was produced by 20th Century Fox and released in 1968. Pierre Boulle's 1963 French novel was optioned by producer Arthur P. Jacobs soon after its publication. Initially, Blake Edwards was brought in to direct with former Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling coming on board to adapt the novel. Officially, Serling worked on three very different drafts over the next three years. Serling changed the name of the novel's protagonist from Ulysse to John Thomas. Early in script development, Serling came up with the famous twist ending, which he and the producers would refer to simply as Rosebud. As work on the project continued, 
Blake Edwards left and Franklin J. Schaffner joined the production as director. Eventually, Serling stepped away from Planet of the Apes and writer Michael Wilson joined the production, adding a lighter comedic touch to the script. Wilson's previous work included It's a Wonderful Life, Lawrence of Arabia, and the adaptation of Pierre Boulle's Bridge Over the River Kwai. Boulle's La Planète des Singes is set on an ape planet almost identical to the modern world of the 1960s. In Boulle's book, apes lived in cities with skyscrapers. They drove cars and flew planes and helicopters. It was decided by the studio heads at Fox to reduce the cost of the film by simplifying the world these apes occupied. Now they would live in adobe type structures and use horses rather than cars. The completed film features Charlton Heston as astronaut George Taylor, who travels through time and lands on an unknown planet with his fellow astronauts Dodge and Landon. A fourth member of the team, a female astronaut named Stuart, has died in hypersleep during the flight. As in the novel, the space travelers, after a long, arduous hike through a desert, discover a human-like species who are nonverbal primitives. Soon after coming upon these people, the stranded astronauts are caught up in an ambush by hunting intelligent gorillas. During the hunt, Taylor is separated from his fellow astronauts and is shot, causing him to temporarily lose the ability to speak. I guess I should say shot in the throat. He is taken for medical experimentation where he realizes all apes speak and all of the native humans are dumb animals. He is imprisoned with a beautiful but savage woman who he names Nova, played by actress Linda Harrison, the then girlfriend of Dick Zanuck, the studio head at Fox. Taylor is soon befriended by the chimpanzees Zira, a veterinarian, and her fiancé Cornelius. At the same time, Taylor gains an enemy in the orangutan Dr. Zayas, the minister of science, who recognizes the threat as an intelligent man Taylor poses to the future of the planet of the apes. As the film progresses, Taylor discovers his fellow astronauts. The body of Dodge has been stuffed and is on display in a museum. While Landon is still alive, he has been lobotomized. Taylor, who has regained the ability to speak, is put on trial. One that manages to echo both the Scopes Monkey Trial and McCarthy's Red Scare hearings of the 1950s, which writer Michael Wilson was blacklisted by. Deeply threatened by Taylor's existence, Zayas threatens to have the human castrated and lobotomized. With the help of Cornelius and Zira, Taylor escapes to the Forbidden Zone with his female companion Nova. There they discover Rod Serling's rosebud, the destroyed remains of the Statue of Liberty, partially buried on the beach. Taylor realizes he has been on Earth all along, and the credits roll. Planet of the Apes was released on February 8, 1968, and became a smash hit, earning $22 million. The film went on to garner two Oscar nominations, one for jo Jerry Goldsmith's highly original score and one for the costume design of Morton Hack. John Chambers received an honorary Oscar for his groundbreaking makeup effects, the first ever given to a makeup artist. The original film spawned four subsequent sequels, a primetime television drama, and a Saturday morning cartoon. As a cultural phenomena in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, it sold merchandise of all kinds, comic books, action figures, lunchbox, you name it. The pre-Star Wars world was ape crazy. 
The 21st century has seen a revival of interest in apes mythology. 2001, we saw Tim Burton's reimagined Poda return to cinemas. And more recently, Fox released a new series of commercially and critically successful Planet of the Apes films fe featuring Andy Serkis as Caesar. Disney, who in 2019 bought out Fox, is planning to add a fourth film to the current series in the near future. And David, that is your POTA update in a rather large nutshell. Just don't ask me how to break down the Hasline theory. We might need Rob with for that one. But uh, Rob, now, is there anything more to add? Because that was just sort of a general overview, because certainly the political climate yeah. of the time. Go ahead. The, absolutely. The film was really ripped from the headlines of the mid to late 1960s. Uh, certainly, uh, Troy mentioned, uh, well, no, he did. I mean, let, let me get uh, more directly than Troy mentioned it. The film is about race relations and the fear of nuclear war. These are the two front page stories that everybody was being concerned by in 1966, 67, when the film was shot and 68, when the film came out. Uh, I think it's very, very clear that this film was of its time. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's also the space race going on. So certainly having that space craft and with the whole U.S. and, and the, this landing on this planet ties in with what was going on with the, the, the Russia and the American space race to the moon. Sure, absolutely. Uh, there's also demonstrations and stuff like that. I did watch uh, this, the second and third. I've seen all of them, but it's been a while. But it's certainly neat how much the, the even demonstrations and people trying to assert their rights come up in the series of films, which is kind, and of course, science versus faith. Uh, Troy did mention, and I know this is one of your favorite films, is the the Inherit the, Inherit the Wind, about the Scots money, monkey trial, and how much of a connection I feel to that. Do you, do you see the same thing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Troy mentioned that Dr. Zayas was Minister of Science, but he also was Chief Defender of the Faith. And as Zayas says, there's no contradiction between faith and science, true science, he says. <laughs> this is an issue that we're still fighting today uh, with, you know, the far right in the United States uh, embracing a fundamentalist science, a fundamentalist religious point of view and jettisoning modern, uh, jettisoning modern science. So absolutely, Planet of the Apes, although it is more than 50, year old, 50 years old now, speaks very much to us today about some of our societal conundrums. Rob, this is a question, uh, obviously for you, but but also David. If you want to sort of chime in on it, when was the what was your first exposure to uh, the '68 film? And I did not get to see it in 1968. My parents felt that it was too uh, violent uh, to send me to it. Remember, the film came out before uh, my birthday in '68, so I was only seven years old when the film came out. And they simply would not let me go see it, nor would they let me go see Beneath the Planet of the Apes in 1970. So I didn't discover these films until uh, they started showing up on TV around about 72 when I was 12 years old. And fortunately, uh, I eventually got to see them all on the big screen. The Ontario Science Centre here in Toronto had a wonderful 70 millimeter film theatre and uh, showed uh, those films as well as 2001, all the great science fiction classics in a film series they had that ran on Friday nights 
for many years, but I was discovered them on TV and discovered them a few years after they were originally in theaters. The first one that I got to see in theater when it came out was Conquest. My brother Peter and I went to see that as a new release. Oh, nice. That would be great on a big screen. It's um, a spectacular film. It's just a uh, really, really uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful piece of work, Conquest is. Yeah, I was actually um, sort of picking the brain of a fellow Planet of the Apes fan yesterday, and I sort of forced him to uh, to rank his, his, his uh, favorites of the original series. And basically he said, uh, they're all number one except for battle, and that's number five. Yeah. Um, but for me, conquest, yeah, really made an impact. And I mean, certainly you see the uh, the uh, political statements that are being made there. You I mean you can't miss them. Um, but as a uh, as a kid watching it, you you realize this is the near future. This is not like the the first uh, two films where it's. Uh, it's so far, so deep into the future. Um, and, and there was that sense, you know, that this could happen. Maybe, maybe this could happen. Um, it, it's just such a powerful film conquest for sure. So I'm assuming that like uh, probably the three of us and a lot of people in our general age group, um, it, when you say you saw it on TV, was that uh, those original uh, CBS broadcasts around uh, 73 or four? I suppose. Well, I, you know, that's an interesting question because I saw Conquest in theater and I had seen the other films prior to that. So I'm not sure when I saw them first broadcast on TV or who was broadcasting them, uh, but they certainly stuck with me. Yeah. What about you, David? When, what was your first exposure to Planet of the Apes? It's a similar, similar, similar thing to Rob where it was on TV. Because uh, I was also a bit too young. I was born in 62. So um, by 72, I would have been 10. So you see the quick math there. And they said there'd be no math uh, during this episode. <laughs> um, and it's certainly one of the things that brought me in. Plus, of course, the Planet of the Apes comics. Yeah, there are some comics out there. Like I, I bought like Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, um, and those kinds of things. Conan saga and there's a whole range of different comics that i bought but certainly there were planet of the apes uh uh comics i'm not sure if you both both picked up any of the comics back marvel in the did a fabulous monthly plan up there uh, troy has one in his hands there <laughs> the uh, marvel series which i discovered with the third issue just at my local corner store uh and bought all the subsequent ones and later was able to find as collectibles issues one and two were black and white comics with spectacular art uh by people like mike plug just tremendous tremendous uh uh, issues that also had behind the scenes articles, uh, which was very rare at that time to get really any access to, you know, uh, what the filmmakers were thinking interviews with uh, not just the stars, but with the writers and the producers and so forth, really excellent behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. And one of the great things that I loved about the, uh, the series, the, uh, the Curtis Marvel, uh, black and white magazine was how basically there would always be uh, two stories. The first story, the front story, the A story was an adaptation of, uh, an episode of one of the movies and the backstory was original. 
um, by one of the Marvel writers. And I found those stories just fascinating. And they were sort of set in that era like the television show and battle where humans and apes could both speak. Um, and there were just some really uh, uh, thought-provoking stories in there. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it showed that there was a universe of Planet of the Apes, not just, uh, you know, the five films, but that this was a property that could be repeatedly revisited, which is something, of course, that we've been doing now for over five decades. That's right. And one of the things that I find really exciting is that it's it's inexhaustible because, you know, once you buy into sort of the the Hasslein uh, time travel idea, um, we can have like a multiverse of ape stories. You know, we don't have to follow the one trajectory. Um, we can have all these various versions where basically Pierre Boulle's Planet of the Apes can exist alongside of uh, the universe of the films. And that's great if you're an Apes fan. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That said, of all the different incarnations we've had, you mentioned uh, them in the uh, introduction, the original five films are the most important thing to me, more important than the uh, live action or animated series and much more important than the more recent uh, CGI ape uh, versions. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's... Yeah, there's definitely some stuff with that first uh, film because, you know, watching these all again, I, it was kind of neat because I found a flyer, Rob, of an actual apes festival that you ran back in 1990 yes. at, at your apartment where you actually created a flyer and said, okay, these are on these Saturday nights on these five consecutive weeks or whatever it was in September of 1990, we had all of the five films. We all came to your place and watched them, uh, which was kind of a, cool keepsake so i have that flyer somewhere here um and that would have been vhs video cassette copies vhs video cassette copies and subsequently we got uh, dvd and now we've got just spectacularly good blu-ray editions uh, of the film and it, one is uh, blown away looking at those films on blu-ray the uh, leon shamroy who was one of the great cinematographers who filmed uh, the first one uh, you know just wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's like Ansel Adams made a motion picture in terms of capturing the American Southwest where the film was largely shot. That's right. And I, you know, I was watching yeah, some of the, <laughs> some, some, sorry, David, some of those recently. And what really uh, amazed me for the first time, or I had an appreciation for it was that in one of the special features uh, they were saying, I think it might've been, um, Kim Hunter saying that with the prosthetic jaw, um, there were certain angles that they could not shoot from because you would see the uh, the made up ape teeth and you could also see into the mouth and see the actor's actual teeth. Um, but it's amazing that, that none of that shows up even in these super clean versions now. Um, they did such a good job of choosing their angles. I mean, there might be some images out there where you can pick up on this or where you can see perhaps where the prosthetics meets the skin or something, but I've never seen them. Yeah, it's spectacular, the quality. And remember, uh, we're watching these on Blu-ray, and even if we're watching them on a 50 or 65-inch sets, that's still nothing compared to people seeing them 
in big motion picture theaters in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, the quality of the work had to be absolutely first rate to stand being blown up that big. And it really is. It's just they're visually stunning films. I think that's one of the things that the, that first Planet of the Apes film did. It's just almost like that, that, that first Star Wars film. It just basically set such a high standard for costume, for makeup, for story, for just what it did. Just like 2001, it was just so sort of out of the box and set such a high level at such a high standard. Everyone else had to bring up their game to compete. Well, and you mentioned that. It's all very true. Uh, also, let's mention the actors. Because although we tend to make a bit of fun of Charlton Heston today, remember, he was an Academy Award winner. And Kim Hunter was an Academy Award winner before this film was made. This was the first time a science fiction film had been made with major Academy Award winning actors as the principals in the film. And that really raised the bar of what was required in terms of acting and performance in a science fiction film. Yeah, and I think uh, just to jump in for a second, I know Troy wants to probably no. mention something, but Roddy McDowell, who is one of my favorite actors, is so underrated as an actor. I 100% agree, 100% agree. Uh, his performance throughout the, the series, he's in four of the five films, uh, is first rate. His performance in Conquest is absolutely incredible. The transformation he brings on that screen from Caesar as essentially a whimpering child in Armando's arms at the beginning, no, I don't want to go, I don't, to the leader of a revolution, uh, is one of the great cinematic performances of all time. But McDowell is, you're absolutely right. And he was a child actor. He was in How Green Was My Valley and, of course, Lassie films and so forth and acted right up until when he sadly passed away. Just an incredible career. And it is a, a tragedy that he never won an Academy Award. Yeah, and I think that... Uh even though when we talk about the TV series, we're talking about uh, definitely a, a step down in, in quality from the first film um, and the first couple of films. But I think it's Roddy McDowell that really uh, allows that show to stand up um, despite all of the, uh, the television uh, production uh, elements that always require, you know, fewer takes and, and shooting faster um, and, you know, basically just getting something to air. But it, it was Roddy McDowell that, that still made the show fly. Roddy McDowell was spectacular in everything he did, including the Planet of the Apes TV series. Mark Leonard played General Urko. Uh, the guerrilla security chief was also fantastic in that series. But as McDowell himself said about the TV series, the producers made a horrible mistake, which is that they thought it was about the humans when people tuned in to learn about the ape culture. And instead, it was the human fugitives going and finding a human village every week where they solved the problems of the humans, whether it was an agricultural problem or an irrigation problem or whatever it was, with the apes just in the background as pursuit. And it really was a complete misfire 
because what we wanted was Planet of the Apes, not Planet of the uh, post-apocalyptic humans. And uh, the series has its moments. The TV series has its moments. But I knew from the moment I saw the first episode and in the opening scene, you see a, uh, a chimpanzee with a dog. And we learned in the mythology of course, right. the five movies that dogs and cats are extinct. And then when I saw that Anthony Wilson uh, had written the pilot, who was the story editor for Lost in Space, uh, that, you know, another Fox property, that uh, they could have had Rod Serling, and instead they had Anthony Wilson, that clearly the Fox executives in charge of the series, because Serling did write a pilot for the TV series, as well as writing, uh, you know, the first few drafts of the first motion picture. They could have had something as brilliant as uh, as Twilight Zone, and instead they ended up with something that was boring, repetitive, uh, and and really we have affection for because we have affection for all things apes. But if it was the only incarnation that Planet of the Apes had ever had, that TV series, it would be a long forgotten property. Okay, now you've you've really spurred something for me here. Uh, so. I, I did not know about the Serling uh, pilot. Have you have you seen it? Oh, well, of course, it was never filmed, but I've seen the script. You've got to go to Hunter Goatley's Planet of the Apes archive. I will. Check, check on the script section. Hunter's uh, uh, consummate collector of Planet of the Apes material, photographs, behind-the-scenes stills, Hunter's Planet of the Apes archive, and you will find the Serling, uh, the Serling pilot script there. Absolutely. Do any any elements stick out with you, Robert? Any elements, like story points that you could share? Well, I, it's not so much any individual plot point, but that Serling understood that it was social comment, and Anthony Wilson never did. There's only a glancing and mostly pedestrian, so, oh, we should all get along, human and ape, right? right. Uh, social comment in the TV series, whereas Serling recognized right from the beginning, that what Pierre Boulle was doing with his novel, The Planet Assange, was uh, biting satire. And uh, that that's missing, it's, it's there in spades in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes in, and Escape from the Planet mm. of the Apes in particular. Those three are extremely satiric films with biting social commentary. And then the fourth film, which isn't satiric at all, it's just filled with social commentary. And the fifth, for that matter, is got a fair bit of, uh, of social commentary, too. All of that is gone from the TV series, but was there in Serling's original pilot. Okay, got to find that. Yeah, with um, one thing, uh, because, Rob, you've been, you know, uh, someone who's loved Planet of the Apes through the years and have picked up more and have bought more, read more, and picked up things over the last 50 plus years is there are what are the things or the surprises or the things that you did not know about the film early on or the series that you learned later in life that that is kind of surprises you or, or just cool things that you didn't know at the time well here's another one that was revealed to me by hunter's planet of the apes archive where he has the shooting script for escape from the Planet of the Apes. Now, you mentioned, uh, Troy, in your introduction that Dodge, one of the astronauts, is stuffed and put on display in the Zayas Museum. What you didn't mention is that Dodge is African-American, and he's the only African-American we see in the film. The entire population of humans uh, 
left in Planet of the Apes is Caucasian. There are no Asians, there are no African Americans, there are no black people, no brown people, no Native American people. It's all white people. And we see the one black person put on display. Well, is that coincidence? Or, you know, that why why did they put this particular human on display of all the humans that were killed in the hunt? Well, right. in escape, in the scene where uh, Zira is interrogated by uh, Hasline's uh, goons, they talk about Dodge. And he was put on display in the museum. Why? Because he was unlike any human we'd ever seen before. What do you mean? His skin was black. It's right there in the script. Now, right. they ultimately snipped it out, but it was quite clear that one of the parallels that Planet of the Apes was talking about is race relations and a subtext, not just that nuclear war had caused the downfall of humanity, but a race war had caused the downfall of humanity. And they bring that sort of to a head in Conquest, where, uh, uh, you know, uh, Harry Rhodes plays McDonald, an African-American man who is sympathetic to the plight of the enslaved uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans in that film. Uh, the films have an awful lot to do with race relations. And that's not, uh, whatever my head, the first time I saw the original Planet of the Apes, you know, the very first ape that speaks is just a gorilla hunter who says, smile. Uh, it's a photographer taking a picture of the other hunters. But the first ape that speaks at length is Dr. Galen, and he's complaining to Dr. Zira that he can't advance in his profession because he's a chimpanzee. And Zira says, well, the racial quota system has been abolished. And Galen says, that's easy for you to say. The military finds your work useful. But it's very much talking about the fact that there was enormous racial injustice in 68, and there still is today. But uh, this was a film that grappled with those issues, a series of films that grappled with those issues in a way almost nothing in 68 was doing. Yeah, it's really, really incredible. You know, speaking of uh, 1968, when you look at the list of uh, notable genre films, it's pretty incredible. You know, you've got Rosemary's Baby, 2001, which you mentioned is your favorite film, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Barbarella, uh, and one of my favorite uh, sort of cult films, Spider Baby, with, I believe, Lon Chaney's in that. But uh, yeah, it's just a remarkable year for films that have stuck with us. It really was. And it was a, the year when uh, science fiction films became Oscar contenders outside of technical categories. Uh, when science fiction films became big box office blockbusters, 2001 and Planet of the Apes were both monster hits in, the, in that year. And that was incredible, uh, given that, uh, you know, there just weren't that many big blockbuster science fiction films earlier in the 60s. Fantastic Voyage from 66, probably the closest thing, another Fox film, by the way, as Planet of the Apes was, closest thing to being a blockbuster prior to Planet of the Apes. You know, another one of the things that we tend to forget with the passage of time is just how powerful the ending was and would yes. have been to viewers the first time around. Um, I guess the only thing really as close in a 
in a way that uh, has left its cultural stamp would be uh, learning that Darth Vader, sorry, Darth, Darth Vader is Luke's father in Star Wars or the second film. Or um, as you said, you know, that their code name was Rosebud, referring right. to uh, the sled in Citizen Kane, that this was, uh, oh my God. Yeah, it's just you know, knocks you or or Soylent Green is people, right? That's one right. of those surprise endings um, that just throws you for a loop, and it infuriates me that the current yeah, pack, the Sixth Sense, the Sixth Sense, another one with Bruce Willis. Uh, it infuriates me that the packaging for so many Planet of the Apes collectibles and for the movies these days have as the cover illustration right the Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand. Uh, because there's generations out there who have never seen these films and to spoil it like that is incredible. I had, uh, you know, I actually, here's how much I love Planet of the Apes. For the 50th anniversary in 2018, I flew to Los Angeles just to see the 50th anniversary screening of Planet of the Apes at the University of Southern California Film School, where they brought in William Krieber, who had been the art director, and Dan Strepak, who had one of the makeup designers, John Chambers having passed away since, one of the lead makeup artists, and uh, Bobby Porter, who had played uh, Caesar's son Cornelius in the fifth film, uh, and a variety of other people have been associated with the production. And so I took as my plus one, my friend, I don't want to name drop here, but I will, Chase Masterson, who's well known mm -hmm. for playing Lita, the Dabo girl on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She had never seen Planet of the Apes and had wow. not had it spoiled for her. She had not been aware of the trick ending. And she was blown away. She was stunned by how good the film was. She had only ever, you know, been aware of it as kind of a cheesy popcorn property is what she thought. That she had no idea that the depth of uh, social commentary that was in there and she was appropriately blown away by the ending. So I got to vicariously experience the joy of somebody going, Oh my God, it's earth all along. Are you, are you kidding me? Yeah, actually the friend that I was telling you about earlier that I was uh, discussing uh, planet of the apes with, he said that uh, he wanted to uh, show his son, the original film. And uh, he said, but he, he had to keep hiding yes. the DVD because the cover is the shot of Heston and Nova at the uh, uh, Statue of Liberty. And then even the DVD, he says, it's printed on the DVD. So, I mean, that, yeah, yeah. that's a <laughs> I just a bought uh, the 112 Collective uh, just released a new action figure of Dr. Zayas, $85 US for a six inch tall action figure, an outrageously expensive price, but it's a terrific action figure. But the box, this is 2021, new, new merchandise just out. The box has that same illustration on it. I wish so strongly that Fox would uh, pull that key art and come up with something else for selling these films. I mean, for God's sakes, the image that sells the films is a gorilla on horseback, right? Mm. You don't have to spoil the entire first film uh, to get people interested. Mm -hmm. Heston and the Statue of Liberty is not the image that made people pick up these films in the first place. It was a gorilla or an orangutan or a chimpanzee. In prepping for the episode, I went back to the uh, uh, an episode of Mad Men, season six, episode five, where uh, Don Draper takes his son to see Planet of the Apes. 
uh, in the theater, which actually shows that he's a really bad father because he's actually not supposed to let his son watch TV. So his out is he takes him to see a movie anyway, and it's Planet of the Apes. And they show clips of the film, including the spoiler moment. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's great because they show the audience as the credits begin to roll and the entire audience is just sitting there dumbfounded. And uh, John Hamm's character just turns to his son and he says, do you want to see it again? And they, just, and they just sit there and they just watch yeah, it. A yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an yeah. amazing film. And of course, there's the famous uh, parody from The Simpsons. Oh, I was <laughs> wrong. It was Earth all along. You no. finally made a monkey. <laughs> yes, we finally made a monkey. Oh, you finally made a monkey out of me. <laughs> I think David told me that you know all of the words to uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, stop the planet of the apes i want to get off <laughs> yes yes brilliant production yes there's also rob you know the words of course from about beware, beware the, beast, the man. beast man for he is the devil's pawn alone among god's primates he kills for sport or lust or greed yea he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land let him not breed in great numbers for he'll make a desert of his home and yours shun him Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. So say we all. So say we all. <laughs> so said Rodney McDowell. Some of those quotes. Yes, there, there are certainly some great uh, quotes from the film that just still stand stand up. You know, despite it being fifty Yet years ago, stinking they're just some, off me, you yeah. damn dirty ape. Being one of the yeah, most famous, and, and, and they just stay with us. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. call some of them up because I, I, I have a terrible memory. Now, I don't know if, Rob, because we're doing this by, by via Zoom, if you can actually see my screen or not. Yeah, sure. Or I if can. I have yeah. to start the oh, share. No, I again. see it. Okay, because what I, what I found was a little essay, and we are allowed to use something for it because it says portions may be quoted for purpose of education and editorial comment. There's a little teaching guide, Planet of the Apes, A Guide for Teachers and Students by William Leader, PhD. Uh, William Leader, PhD, is a chairman, was chairman, I don't know if he still is, a liberal arts and professor of science and maybe chief defender of the faith, I'm not sure, Fashion Institute of Technology, State University of New York. So what I wanted to do was to grab, to ask you some questions from from this actual student learning guide for the film. Go ahead. So the first question, in the, build, in the building which houses the apes at the Bronx Zoo in New York, there is an exhibit carrying the identifying legend, the most dangerous animal in the world. As you look through the bars, you find you are face to face with a mirror. Why do you feel this statement is made at the zoo? And what analogous situations do you find in Planet of the Apes? Well, of course, the sad truth is that the only safe apes left on our planet are the ones that are in our zoos. All the ones in the wild are endangered. Uh, they're either endangered directly because they're killed for bushmeat, as it's called, or they're endangered indirectly because we destroy their habitats for agriculture or other reasons. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction, as Dr. Zayas said. And I think the Bronx Zoo makes that point very, very clearly, as does Planet of the Apes. One of the things that we haven't really mentioned is just how cynical and downbeat the original Planet of the Apes, indeed mm -hmm. the entire series is. Um, it was unusual to find 
especially coming on the heels of two years at that point of Gene Roddenberry's very optimistic view of humanity in Star Trek, to have somebody come up and say, you know, we suck. Taylor said at the beginning of the film, there has to be something better than man. Has to be. And it turns out, well, no, there isn't. And uh, we're even worse than we ever thought we were. Yeah, that's some of the wonderful foreshadowing. And I, I, I want to get to that in a minute because I've, I've got all of these great, like, it's just, yeah. when you look at quotable films, you know, you think that Casablanca has probably three or four lines in the top 100 from the AFI, from the AFI when they looked at the top lines of all time from movies. But there are some great lines, of course, in Ace. Well, let me get back to the question. Do you think man may eventually bring about his own self-destruction? There's an awful lot of good reason to think that we will. You know, the other thing that started in the 1960s, that Planet of the Apes actually doesn't really touch on very much, is the ecological movement. It started with about the year 1960 with Rachel Carson's nonfiction book, Silent Spring, about the dangers of DDT and uh, pesticides destroying our environment. And certainly in science fiction, got a real boost in 1965 with Frank Herbert's novel, Dune. Um, and here we are 50, 60 years later, still trying to convince our leaders to take environmental degradation seriously. Global warming is an existential threat here in Canada. Our conservative party just this past month uh, chose not to acknowledge the reality of climate change as a, one of their party planks. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think there's a very good possibility that humanity will go extinct this century and at its own hands. Do you think that somewhere in space, a planet of the apes may exist? Well, there's an awful lot of space, isn't there? Um, the intriguing thing about planet of the apes is there isn't just one dominant intelligent species. There are three orangutans, gorillas, and chimpanzees. And for most of the time that humanity existed, the genus Homo existed on this planet, there were multiple concurrent kinds of hominids uh, in existence as well. Uh, our close cousins, the Neanderthals and the Denisovians, uh, exist alongside us for a great amount of time. So that kind of paradigm where a uh, world might exist with multiple intelligent species simultaneously was the norm uh, for all the time that there, for most of the time that there's been intelligent life on this planet. So in that uh, sense, yes, I think that's quite likely that that kind of multi-racial, multi-species uh, world might exist. Now, sadly, if we have a downfall of human life on this planet, we have so decimated the population of orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos uh, that I doubt that they're going to come back and repopulate uh, the planet. The death of humanity is probably the death of intelligence on this planet civilization for a great length of time to come. Um, do you think it's um, possible that, I mean, clearly with the decimation of the population, that it's unlikely that the apes on our world will eventually <laughs> become intelligent to the point where they take over our planet? That's That would probably be very unlikely. Truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> I've got a couple more questions. From the point of view of time and space, what limitations, if any, will man confront in his travels through space? 
Well, ever since uh, Albert Einstein worked out, uh, you know, relativity, we've had to face the reality that uh, there's a speed limit in our universe, 186,282 miles per hour at the speed of light in vacuum. And uh, one of the nice things about Planet of the Apes is they actually engage with that. Uh, that uh, Einstein's relativity or Dr. Hasline's uh, theory of time dilation, uh, which uh, is referenced in Planet of the Apes, uh, suggests that as you move really fast, uh, time slows down for you, whereas it continues to pass at the outside universe at the regular rate, which is how Taylor ends up, uh, you know, practically uh, 2,000 years in the future. Uh, on Earth, even though he's only been away from Earth for a, a very short period of time by his own clocks. Uh, I suspect we're probably going to have to contend with that speed limit, that despite my love for Star Trek, that faster than light travel probably is not possible. Uh, but that said, if you can get going close to the speed of light, you can get almost anywhere and Pierre Boulle, by the way, dealt with the same issues of relativity in his novel, um, uh, The Planet Assange, uh, about upon which Planet of the Apes is based. Uh, I suspect that we will see voyages like the one Taylor took in Planet of the Apes to the far future, as well as conceivably far distant reaches. I have a question for both of you, actually, um, because I, I'm not aware. I know that um, Bull, along with uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai, had written a number of other books. Was Planet of the Apes his only uh, sci-fi novel, or did he write others? It's his only science fiction novel, but there's a very good collection of his science fiction short stories that has indeed been translated into English. So he wrote a bunch of science fiction works, but only one of them was novel length. And even at that, Planet of the Apes, had to, a very short novel. If if it's 60,000 words, I'd be surprised, which is, um, you know, about half the length of a, of a modern novel. Yeah, I read the uh, the novel for the first time this week, and it was it was you know really great to actually have that exposure to the book. The one thing that surprised me above all things, at least in the translation, was the M word using yes. using the monkey word because as you know as we get out of the series, at least uh, definitely out of Escape from the Planet of the Apes and probably Conquest, I guess is how that sort of a uh, a degrading word. Yeah. So yep. the problem there is Zan Fielding, who did the translation. He had previously translated Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, which, of course, is the most famous work that Pierre Boyle ever wrote, uh, and um, got the job of translating Planet Assange because he's previously been the translator. But he had no feeling for science or science fiction. And it is true that in French, Assange can be either monkey or ape. But it is not true that they are the same thing in English. And Zanfielding simply screwed up. There <laughs> was a, a later American reprint from Del Rey, which is a Random House imprint, where they corrected that and changed it to ape throughout the novel instead of monkey. But the Folio Society, um, last year or the year before, did a wonderful hardcover boxed edition. And they retained the original monkey uh, translation, which bothered me because it's otherwise a spectacular edition, but it's clearly a translation mistake um, and uh, should have been rectified long ago. 
That's right. And the original UK version is not Planet of the Apes, but it's Monkey Planet. Monkey Planet, which is, again, that was Zan Fielding's translation. And you can tell it's a loose translation because the title, Le Planet de Sange, is the Planet of Apes. The Planet of Apes, translated directly. And Fielding said, yeah, I'll call it Monkey Planet, right? Uh, even if he had the Monkey Apes thing wrong, a more accurate translation of what Boyle had said would have been the Planet of Monkeys. So it's clear that, you know, Zanfielding, for whatever his virtues were, was not the most loyal translator one could hope for. Um, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, one of the things I wanted to get into was just, again, some of the great quotes. Like, I don't know if it's Serling or, or however it is, but they have all of this stuff that all this great foreshadowing in the novel. Uh, Rob, you had mentioned earlier about the, the first quote, like, like where Taylor is talking about making his sort of report before he, uh, uh, goes to rest to talk about Dr. Hassline's theory, but he does yes. say is you who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. He also mentions is does man that marvel of the universe that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars still make war against his brother keep his neighbor's children starving like how hard-hitting is that yes it's a wonderful opening it's a soliloquy which you almost never see uh, outside of shakespeare right is charlton heston has this huge speech at the beginning and he lays out thematically what this film is going to deal with uh, well, we're expecting, of course, that he's going to find something better than man, that he's going to find that man uh, is a better breed. And the crushing defeat of the, of the film is, no, the film very clearly says you can't change human nature, no matter how much time passes. Zaius is right when Zaius says man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. And as he says of Taylor, all my life, I've uh, I've awaited your coming, dreaded your dreaded coming. it. All my white life, I've awaited your coming and dreaded it like death itself. Um, Robert, I'm just curious because I have not seen the early drafts. That feels like Serling, was it, or was that no. Michael Wilson? Michael was Wilson? Wilson. Almost a hundred percent of the dialogue yeah. is Michael Wilson. Okay, who was uh, Serling uh, gave us the structure that we're familiar with, the plot line we're familiar with, everything from the scarecrows that Taylor encounters at the beginning to the Statue of Liberty at the end. But Wilson gave it that biting dialogue. Wilson did a complete page one, uh, top-down rewrite. And Wilson and Serling, although they're credited as co-writers, did not collaborate. Yeah. Serling wrote his drafts, left the project. Wilson came in and wrote the drafts, that, uh, including the final draft that was actually filmed. Right. And, and then there's the sort of uh, remarkable similarities to uh, I Shot an Arrow, the Twilight Zone episode in terms of the, uh, the, the framing mechanism of uh, in, in that episode, Arrow 1 is launched. It is, it is lost by the, the space agency. They don't know where it's gone. It lands on a planet that looks like it's uh, uh, barren. Um, and in the end, we get the twist that uh, they're in Nevada. They never left the Earth at all. Yes, I mean, Rod Serling was certainly not averse to reducing, reusing, and recycling. That's right, yes. Yeah, like like a, a stop at Willoughby type of idea. That's <laughs> we right. See that. that's we right. see that a lot. You know, and, and that's fine. I mean, sure. uh, we remember him with great fondness. Um, and uh, 
it's really hard to come up with fresh twist endings every week as he did, or he and his writers, Richard Matheson and the others who uh, wrote episodes of Twilight Zone, you know, did a remarkable job. And all great writers have themes that they want to return to. Oh, absolutely. That's right. That's right. And Serling was certainly, uh, you know, a wonderful choice to take on this material. You know, um, uh, uh, Pierre Bull won an Oscar for the screenplay for uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, which he did not write because he could not write in English. Um, but Michael Wilson had written that screenplay, but was blacklisted and so couldn't take a screen credit. So uh, Wilson had a, you know, quite a familiarity with Bull's work. It, it was, uh, if you're going to bring somebody on after Rod Serling, Wilson was the right guy. Yeah, all three of the films that I mentioned uh, as being, you know, that Michael Wilson worked on, all of them were uncredited at the time of their release. That's right. You That's know. right. They rectified that. The Academy ultimately rectified that posthumously for, for Wilson. But it, it was, you know, I mean... And it is one of those great, great themes of uh, Planet of the Apes is the McCarthy-esque uh, hearings. You know, the hearing that um, uh, James Whitmore presides over and that uh, James Daly as Honorius uh, prosecutes with Taylor as the defendant is an absolute spot-on satirization of the ridiculousness of the McCarthy loyalty hearings. <laughs> gotten into is the music uh, yes. a couple things uh, jerry goldsmith at uh, there's parts of it like when i was listening to when i was watching it again there was a part of it that just sounded yeah, the, the, the horns and when they're the the ape is carrying that human boy through the field and i was thinking you know what that's the beginning of the klingon theme from star trek the motion picture that came out like 10 plus years later yeah there's also some some scene earlier where they meet the scarecrows and there's this music that sounds perfectly now alexander courage added some he was one of the credited um people on the music and there's this theme at one point that sounds exactly like taken from a star trek original series episode yes uh, certainly the music is of its time in the 1960s and yet goldsmith's uh score which uh as troy mentioned was nominated for an academy award was so creative in its use of unusual musical instruments african kukri drums uh the the horns uh, that were used, the ram's horns that were used. There's a very simian uh, vocalization quality to a lot of the music in the film, and it just adds so, so much to the movie. Goldsmith was, you know, uh, to, for my money, the, the best uh, motion picture uh, soundtrack composer of all time. I know a lot of people are partial to John Williams, who would certainly be my second choice. But Goldsmith, I think, is by far uh, the best who's ever done. Yeah, Goldsmith always has some this... of the, the, the famous. Yeah, go ahead, Troy. 
I was just going to say Goldsmith always had this amazing way of actually working to the material with Williams. You get themes that sound very similar to one another. That's right. That's um, right. But, but Goldsmith, uh, I mean, he did aliens as well. Didn't he? The original alien. Yes. Capricorn one is yeah. another one of his, which is spectacular. And, uh, you know, just a tremendous composer and, and everything different. Um, whereas you're exactly right. You know, we love the theme from Star Wars. We love the theme from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But if they had appeared in each other's film uh, <laughs> originally, nobody would have batted an eye. Okay. Um, so we're at about the one hour mark. And if this was a convention, someone would be holding up that little, you know, open the door and hold up that five minute uh, sign saying, hey, you guys got a vamoose. So I was wondering if there is any sort of final thoughts and feeling because we certainly return. And one of the things I was hoping, Rob, that maybe later this fall, because I know that you're a big fan of the Night Stalker. Yes. Uh, and Darren McGavin, that we what we might want to do is do a special episode just on the Night Stalker, the two, the two movies, and of course the series, because that's worth, I think, an episode. And you're very and you're very much an expert on that. Um, Absolutely. But any final thoughts? Well, you know, yeah, it's funny ahead. you should mention the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler, uh, because it's snappy dialogue. And Planet of the Apes is a film that is full of snappy, quotable dialogue. Uh, you know, if Aaron Sorkin had ever written a science fiction film, it would have been Planet of the Apes. It, would, it has that, uh, those long speeches that Sorkin uh, has. It has that almost Shakespearean quality that Sorkin has. Had incredibly quotable lines, great epic burns. Uh, it's just a tremendous piece of performance uh, for, for actors to perform. And the actors they got, I mean, I mentioned, of course, the two Academy Award uh, winners and Roddy McDowell, but Morris Evans as Zayas and, uh, uh, you know, James Whitmore and James Daly and, you know, um, Woodrow Parfrey, these incredibly great stage actors that they brought in, uh, people who were every bit at home doing, equally as home, doing Shakespeare as doing Planet of the Apes. Uh, the elevated quality of the speech making in the film is one of the things that uh, just uh, makes it an absolute joy to not just watch, but to listen to. Uh, Troy, final uh, comments or, or thoughts? Well, it's, I just want to thank Robert. It's, it's been amazing. Uh, again, having a, uh, a POTA uh, master <laughs> with us. Um, because it's something that I find inexhaustible that can always be returned to. So uh, I'd, I'd like to thank you, Robert. My pleasure. And remember, apes shall never kill ape. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Rob. And take it easy. And our next podcast should be in two weeks. Thanks a lot, everyone. And take it easy. Cheers. Cheers.